I'm reminded of the words of the great prophet 2,700 years ago or so who said, Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So we don't sing songs about how good God is, although He is good. We sing about how great He is and how truly great He is and how fortunate we are to be able to pray together, to study together, and to engage in worshiping our God and poking one another, right? We're here to provoke one another. And I appreciate Brother David Neal's good series, as David said this morning, reminding us about the importance of stimulating one another to good works on occasions like this, as well as on occasions elsewhere outside of the walls of this building. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 21, where we're going to spend most of our time this evening. And once you've got John 21 kind of safely tucked away or marked, then we're going to go to the book of Matthew and look at five passages in Matthew in rapid succession to prove a point that I hope that you will appreciate as much as I appreciated the first time that I really recognized it. In the book of John, at the very end of the book of John, the writer, the Apostle John, is recording this conversation that he had with the Savior, that he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And of course, as good Bible students, we know that he's using some different words there in the original language, playing off of the words that Peter was using, and we'll talk about that here in just a second or two. But what I really want us to focus on in John chapter 21 is not so much the heart of the story, though we'll talk about that a little bit this evening, but I want us to reflect on the final two words that our brother Bobo read for us a few moments ago, where he says, when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And that is the term that I want us to focus on this evening. But not so much just follow me, but I'm here to present or argue that this is an uncommon follow me for a couple of reasons that we'll explore. So this is kind of a sermon in reverse. We're looking at the end of the text before we look at the beginning of the text. And I'm giving away the punchline before we go any further in that everything is about the phrase follow me. Why is that the case? Well, let me share with you what I have found and what I thought was kind of interesting. I'm sure I'm not the first person to have noticed this before, but I want us to appreciate this notion of Jesus saying to someone, follow me. Now, the idea of follow me is not uncommon at all. He has made that statement a number of different times. If you want to jot these down, if you want to read with me, we'll read these five in rapid succession. But in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, you recall that Jesus was walking by Galilee and he saw Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew. And I was wondering if you're paying attention because that conversation was not between John, but it was between Peter and Jesus. Did you catch that? How many of you caught that? Okay, good. We're paying attention then. So actually, that's not true. I just misspoke. I'm on a roll with that here lately, am I not? But here he finds that Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
And then just a couple of pages over in your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 22, the text records for us that Jesus said in talking about the commitment that David talked about this morning in the parallel text of Luke chapter 9, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In chapter 9, in verse 9, Jesus passed from there and he saw a man by the name of Matthew at the tax office and he said, follow me, and he arose and followed him. A few pages over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, the Bible says that Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And fifthly, and finally, in our list of uh, examples of this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect or be complete, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So the idea of Jesus saying, follow me, is not that spectacular in order to present some sort of a point. But this is what I thought was interesting, is that all of the follow me's, where Jesus is either speaking to Peter, or he's speaking to Matthew, or he's speaking to a general group of people, or general audience of individuals, is that this statement here in John chapter 21 is the only time that Jesus makes the statement, follow me, after his death, near his ascension, after his resurrection. Now, he may have very well said, follow me to a number of other people. I'm not suggesting that this is the only time. But this is the only time that the Holy Spirit saw fit to tell us that Jesus said, follow me to someone post-resurrection, post-crucifixion, post-death. All of that important stuff that we understand helps formulate the new covenant. I believe that that follow me was inserted by the Holy Spirit for us to really appreciate and to really understand and to learn something from. Are there lessons from that follow me, from that particular follow me? And I believe that there are three things that we should know for absolute sure. Number one, we need to know that when it comes to service to Jesus Christ, to our heavenly King, that there is a price to be born. We have to consider the fact that there is nothing for free. I've mentioned before that I spent a number of years teaching at the high school level, and one of the topics that I taught was economics. And one of the things that I was always really, uh, I always enjoyed uh, talking about was that there is absolutely nothing that is free. Now, we spiritually could put an asterisk next to that and, and argue that. But economically, there is nothing that is free because there's always a cost born to something else. And my students would, would say, no, no, I got this free at the store just last week. And I said, no, you didn't get it free. There was an opportunity cost involved for those of you that like economics. There's a phrase for no extra charge tonight. But there's an opportunity cost involved in serving God There is something that is necessary in order for us to be pleasing to him. We've got to give up something. Jesus, in fact, in Luke chapter 9, in that text that David took us through this morning and did a nice job of doing so, tells us that we need to be ready to forsake all and serve God. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say, you cannot serve me, love me, unless you are willing to hate 
your own family, to put them second and last to me. Throughout the text of John chapter 21, what Jesus seems to be doing here is trying to make certain that Peter knew what was involved in service to him. Now, Peter was no stranger to Jesus. He had just spent the last 36 to 42 months in service to Jesus, and he had had some really high moments And he had had some rather low moments as well. We talked about that a little bit in our Bible class period this morning when Peter was walking on the water and he had that great emotional high and then that incredible emotional low. But the act of feeding was costly. Notice here in chapter 21, as the text evolves, that it says in John chapter 21, where he says, Simon Peter do you love me? And he says, of course, yes, Jesus or Peter is not going to say, well, let me think about that. He's just going to give the answer that he knows is the right answer. It's the answer that that we would give as well if Jesus were to have a one-on-one conversation with us. In fact, I I would suggest that all of us have said publicly that we love Jesus, maybe not so much with those words, but those of us who are Christians, when we were baptized, we said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or we said that, yes, we do believe that he is the Messiah. We, in some way, made a public confession of faith, and in doing so, we're acknowledging that we love Jesus, else we wouldn't be going through the process of being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. But here in John chapter 21, he says, if you love me, then I want you to, verse 15, feed my sheep, verse 16, at least in the New King James Version, tend my sheep, and then back in verse 17, in the latter part, he says, feed my sheep. And we'll talk about the difference between those terms here in just a second. But I think what we need to appreciate is that doing the work is costly. Sometimes it requires your treasure. Sometimes it requires your talent. And sometimes it just requires your time. And maybe, just maybe, one of the things that... uh, that Peter was having to understand that Jesus was trying to get the message across was particularly the work that he was going to do as a shepherd. We know that Peter ends up serving as a pastor at some particular time. He refers to himself as a fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. Maybe he's referring to his work in teaching, saying your teaching is going to take you different places where you didn't expect to go and to people with whom you did not expect to have some sort of a conversation, but your work is going to be costly. There's going to be a cost to doing what is right. And whether you are an elder or not, the fact is, is this is everyone's job. Jesus here on this particular occasion uses two words for feeding. The first word he uses there that we typically translate into the word feed is literally to keep or to provide food. And you'll notice in verse 15, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. These lambs seemingly being, as we talked about in our introduction, things that you are already familiar with, these newer or younger saints. And there's something to be said for the work of elders and for the work of every Christian, young and old, in being able to invest time into our younger Christians. One of the things that we uh, sometimes don't do a good job of, not on Northfield Boulevard, but I mean as Christians in general, 
is that sometimes we think when a person is baptized, especially someone who has very little background in Bible, we've done our job, they're now baptized, they are Christians, and we are good to go. We'll see you later in heaven. But that's not the way it works. Those new individuals sometimes are the ones that need the most attention because they don't know anything. I've known of people, in fact, have baptized individuals who knew very little about the Bible. And it's one of the most exciting things to do is to sit down and then to study with them over the next three, four, five, six weeks as this stuff is brand new to them. I mean, this is the stuff that some of us grew up with. I mean, we knew this stuff very well. But can you imagine being 20 or 30 or 40 years old or older and learning this stuff for the first time and your eyes are wide open saying, I can't believe this stuff is real. I can't believe this stuff has actually happened because it's that wonderful. It's our job to make sure that we communicate that with younger Christians. But he also uses the word feed or the word tend, the idea of protecting or ruling. And so this is certainly, you can see how this could apply to the work of local shepherds here at Northfield Boulevard that our three shepherds have to keep, to provide, to protect, and rule. All four of those verbs are important. In fact, you go and read 1 Timothy chapter 3, you read Titus chapter 1, where you see the litany of things that are associated with the work of elders. You see that that is certainly the case. But it seems that where he says here, I want you to tend to or feed my sheep, including both the younger and the older saints. And that's why we have people who are here tonight and we won't ask for a show of hands, who are well into their 70s or 80s or pushing 90. And some of you have been Christians for 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 plus years. And you're here not because you have all the answers, but you're here because you want to learn as much as everybody else because this is a valuable thing to do. Jesus taught Peter that his future freedom... In fact, his very life would be in the hands of others. There in the text, he says, someone else is going to gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And in case there was any uh, uncertainty about what Jesus meant, this he spoke, the Holy Spirit said, signifying by what death he would glorify God. The Bible does not record how Peter died. Secular history seems to suggest how he died which seems to fit very nicely with verses 18 and 19 in that particular context. There's one more thing that I want us to explore. And this is one of those things where I'm going to ask the question and then not give the answer to and then let you figure it out for yourself because I'm not sure that I know the answer. There are certain things that we look at in Scripture and say, I'm not sure exactly what that means. We do know in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that the secret things belong to God. But what was or what were the these Did you notice that in verses 15, 16, 17, or particularly verse 15? He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? What are the these that are there? There's been countless volumes filled with all kinds of speculation. And again, I'm not about to say exactly what it may be. I do believe a point to be made that I'll make in just a moment. That is, some have suggested it's the other disciples. Do you love me more than your comrades? Because by the way, a few weeks ago, you didn't show that love very well, right? Do you love me more than the other disciples? And a lesson for us would be, we must put Christ before even our brethren. 
that when our brethren are in sin, as we talked about on Tuesday and Wednesday evening in our gospel meeting just last week, it's our responsibility to do what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and James chapter 5 teaches us, and that is to teach them and bring them back from the error of their ways. Some have suggested that Jesus, when he says, do you love me more than these, he made a motion towards the instruments of his work. Maybe the fish or maybe the nets. Maybe that's what he was referring to. Here's one thing that I think is interesting and that I think is really important and most important. And that is perhaps the mystery associated with the word these or the ambiguity associated with it was purposeful on the part of the Holy Spirit to illustrate to us that many things can keep us from faithful service to God. So... By leaving it generic and not being specific, in many ways, the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit would do with Paul with the thorn in the flesh, because we all wonder what the thorn in the flesh is. And I'm convinced that the thorn in the flesh may very well be ambiguous or a blank space so that you can insert your own problem, your own difficulty, your own issue. So, for example, someone might really struggle with their occupation, which in and of itself is a good thing. In fact, we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of work and, and setting the right example. Or maybe our friends, or maybe our family. All of those things are important, and none of those things are wrong. And in fact, you, you make the argument that having all of those things and honoring all those things is a very good thing. However, Anytime we put anything before God, we are idol worshipers. And that idolatry will be answered for on the day of judgment. And so we need to know that there is a price associated with faithful service to God. There's a second thing that I want us to appreciate, and that is we should know that there is love associated with faithful service to God and the uncommon follow me. The New Testament teaches... That love and service go hand in hand with each other. Turn over, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. Where else are we going to turn besides 1 John chapter 3 and 4 if we're going to talk about love and service going hand in hand? You could read those two chapters on your own sometime this week. But might I suggest just three or four verses here real quickly? In chapter 3, for example, in verse 16, it came to mind. He says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In the next chapter, we are very familiar with the words that are lyrical Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And then he concludes with that golden rule-esque concept, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus, here in John chapter 21, continually asked Peter about his love of him. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He kept asking that same question over and over. And, so, and we get caught up on the difference between agape and phileo, which we'll talk about very briefly here in just two minutes. But think about the, the word me. Do you love me? That's the focus of the love that we are to have. 
Do you love the church? That's important. That's the bride of Christ. Do you love your brethren? That's important because that's the body of Christ. But in essence, do you love me? Jesus knew that if Peter really loved Jesus, then he and we would automatically love the brethren. So Jesus doesn't need to get these people, Peter or the other listeners on this occasion, to understand the importance of loving other people. After all, for example, these people have spent the last three to three and a half years together. But Jesus comes to this conclusion. If I get them to put me first, they will automatically, as a byproduct, put their brethren first. If Jesus comes first, then your brethren come first. And it reminds me not only of how we put brethren first, but how we put others first. And we made brief reference in uh, Brother Bain's class this morning to the concept of the Good Samaritan. And it reminds me of Jack. Jack is a friend of mine who is a 80-plus-year-old preacher who has the stamina of a 40-year-old. Don't those people just sometimes drive you crazy? Yeah, I get some head nods. But he's 80-some years old, has been preaching the gospel for 60 of those years. He is strong physically, but as more importantly, he is strong spiritually. I have a picture of me and Jack in my office so that I always remember him. But he helped a homeless man one time. And I asked him, why did you help him? This is a few years before I was probably understanding, don't ask those kinds of questions, right? He says, I don't know much about him, but I know this. I know Jesus died for him. And it made me feel about this big. Now, I'm not suggesting that it is our responsibility to help every homeless person drive up and down Old Fork Parkway and go into any shop uh, along there. And you're going to find three, four, five different individuals. And if you help them all, you'll go broke yourself. So don't misunderstand my point. My point is simply that Jesus loves everyone, and that should be an automatic way of thinking given the fact that Jesus died for me, and I thought that was spectacular. But let's just spend a moment on why the back and forth over love. We know here that Jesus uses the word agape, which is this beautiful word for a love that truly is divine. Because that's the way God loves us. The world is very familiar with John 3.16. You know, you're not seeing as much John 3.16 these days because there's no fan, very few fans in the stands, right? Used to on TV, you'd be watching those games and everyone hold those big posters up at the end zone. John 3.16, which is kind of nice to see, even in spite of people misusing that or misteaching from it. But it was nice to see people at least referencing scripture. But when it says that God so loved the world, God didn't love us because we first loved him. Romans 5 clears that up very quickly. But he loved us because he loves us. Not because he was going to get something out of it, but because he wanted to do something for us. Peter responds here and he uses a different kind of love, a a passionate love, a, a, a purposeful love, but one that didn't have the same finesse as the word that Jesus used. Until the third time, that is. When Jesus approaches Peter on his level. So here's two questions. Was Peter suggesting a reserved 
love for Jesus? I think probably not. Simply put, Peter here is not going to say, well, I kind of love you, or I kind of like you. You know, he's not going to pull one of those when you're interested in someone. I sure hope she loves me. Oh, yeah, she likes you, all right. (laughs) But that's not exactly what's going on here. But I think the second question is maybe was Peter here checking himself? And I put it up there as a statement, as a conclusion, that was Peter checking himself? Remember that Peter has a history of being rather impetuous, of not thinking things through. He has a history of saying things, and then as soon as he says them, he, I don't even know if he himself caught himself saying things that he ought not. Jesus was the one who had to come in and clean up the mess and say, get behind me, remember, Satan. And he was the one who said, forbid it that that would be the case. And perhaps his humility is in focus. Perhaps Peter is simply saying, yes, I love you, but I am acknowledging that I cannot love you to the degree that I want to love you. I think that's probably a frustration for many of us in prayer when we go to God and we say, God, I want you to know I love you. And it's almost like you're saying, no, I really want you to get it, Father. I love you. No, you you just don't get it enough. I, I, I can't put it into words. I've long thought that the gospel writers must have been frustrated with being able to really convey their messages in ways that really got the message across. Because the words in the language just aren't there. I mean, we we talk about how beautiful heaven must be, and one day we're going to get there, and we're going to look at each other and say, it is more beautiful than I could have even described. And maybe God gives us uh, excellent vocabulary there to put it in perfect words. I don't know. But I do know that we'll realize it, and that we'll see it for what it is, and we'll see the Lord for who he is. The other thing that's interesting and that I'm sure you've thought about before, but if you haven't, note if you would how many times Jesus asks the question. I think there was a series of statements that Peter made in Triad not too much earlier, right? And so Peter on three occasions says, I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question three times, Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So there's something to be said about love. Thirdly and finally, we should know forgiveness. And I believe that that is the biggest point of lesson. You know, usually as preachers, we save our our big points for the end. You know, as as he's winding up, he's getting to the stuff he really wants you to hear. If you hear nothing else, I remember growing up, And older preachers would say, if you get nothing else out of this message, you get this. Well, if you get nothing else out of it, get this. And that is, it's all about forgiveness. Consider, if you would, the context of this event. Peter had recently denied Christ in that very famous or infamous way. And we know that if you go back and read chapters 19, 20, and 21, that they occur in succession. Not always does the Bible occur in succession. That makes things a little bit confusing for us as students. But we know that this happens in order. That is, the events of 1819, the resurrection, uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection occur. But we know that in chapters 20 and 21, because we're at the tail end of chapter 21, we know that they had spent some time together. Here's the question I don't know the answer to. You can ask Peter when you get there if you're curious enough. I don't know that we'll care at that point. But did Peter and Jesus converse before this particular event? I mean, after the crucifixion. 
I mean, so think about it this way. The last interaction with the Savior very well could have been, I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. And now this is your first interaction. You walk around the corner into the room and sitting there is the Savior. And you're Peter. What do you say? I mean, there's nothing you can say at this point. Well, you can say, I'm sorry. You can't, I mean, you can't do that. As much as you say, I'm sorry, you feel for Peter to a degree on this particular occasion. After all was said and done, and after this very difficult conversation, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He hears two words that he heard all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 that probably sounded good to him. And it wasn't, I forgive you. It wasn't, you're absolved. It was simply, follow me. The very way in which Jesus introduced his time with Peter, one of the key apostles, is the very way that he ends his interaction with him. This is what Jesus said to me before I sinned. He's telling me now, I think that means he forgives me because Jesus does forgive. This was not merely a reminder to Peter of Christ's love. It was, it seems to me, an opportunity or an occasion to remind Peter to forgive others as he feeds. I'm sure there were numerous times in the life and times of the Apostle Peter and the Elder Peter where he was required to forgive someone numerous times. Remember, famously, he was the one who said, how about seven times on the subject of forgiveness? So we understand that this follow me is indeed uncommon. The fact that Jesus here on the only occasion as is recorded by the Holy Spirit says, follow me, I don't think is accidental, but I think is purposeful. Because when you think about the forgiveness of Jesus, that's uncommon. You don't see that in the life of human beings. Even we Christians who've been practicing Christianity for some time, we struggle with forgiveness. We struggle to forgive people that hurt us. And we're trying to mimic the Savior. The forgiveness that Jesus offers is uncommon as much as the follow me. And you and I need to take advantage of it. Take advantage of that forgiveness and then model that behavior in our own lives as well. So we end where we began. Follow me. And how wonderful that must have been for Peter to hear. In essence, Jesus says, yeah, you messed up. You disappointed me. But let's move on to the future. Let's move on from the past. And that's what's great about being a Christian is that we can let the past be in the past. Now, if you are in sin and your life is not right, then you cannot just say, well, preacher said, let my past be in the past when it's in your present. The past has to be in the past. And it has to be repented of. In fact, that's one of the points that we talked about earlier in our study this morning. 
But tonight, if you are here and you are not following Jesus, he's asking you to follow him in spite of your past failures, in spite of your past sin. He says, follow me. And we need to be the ones who go about doing that, answering that call. And so if you're here and you're ready to be baptized, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned, according to Mark 16, verse 16. And we would welcome the opportunity to baptize you into Christ this evening. There's no better way to start the rest of this week than on the right foot spiritually. If that means you making a correction tonight in your life by asking for the prayers of brothers and sisters who want to help you, you can be forgiven. And then it's as if Jesus says, all right, now follow me. Let's move forward. What a wonderful Savior we serve. And if we can help you in service to him, let us know how while we stand and sing.